Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast. I'm your host, Billy, and today with me is a guy who I'm very excited to have on. If you've been on LinkedIn, you've definitely seen him in some comment thread throwing down. He was in the Marine Corps. After getting out of the Marine Corps, he worked as an Accenture consultant and then a consultant at CBRE, and then finally founded his own company, which he'll tell us more about in this episode. So stick around. But his name's Sonny Ty. Sonny, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really happy to have you. You just made me sound much more impressive than I actually am, but we'll get there. It depends on who you ask. But let's <laughs> dive right into it. Tell everybody about your military career. And yeah, that's where we'll start. Oh, geez. My military career, very insignificant and unspectacular to be perfectly honest with you. So I was born in Taiwan. I grew up in South Africa, so I'm an immigrant. I came to the U.S. when I was 13 years old. My mom took a job to pay $12 an hour H-1B sponsorship. So I came here on an H-4 visa, which is an H-1B dependent. And I was in high school from 2000 to 2004. And of course, 9-11 hit my sophomore year of high school. Um, But even then, joining the military never really crossed my mind. It was never on my radar until kind of junior year when a girl that I liked asked me to take the ASVAB with her. So I went and took the ASVAB and scored in a 96th percentile without trying. And uh, the Marine Corps recruiter started hitting me up and recruiting me. So when I spoke with him, I was like, yeah, this is really cool. And I used to get bullied when I was in high school. So it'll be something that I'll do that proved I was tough enough, proved that I belong in this country. But one little problem, I didn't have a green card. And... You can't enlist unless you have a green card. I think the policy changed a little bit later on as the government needed more bodies for the Iraq war. (laughs) Um, But at least when I was talking to a recruiter back in three time frame, you couldn't. Um, The good thing is I was on a path to getting a green card. That's our France. My recruiter used to go to INS. It's called USCIS now, basically the U.S. government's immigration agency. And every week he would go and say, hey, I've got a police trying to join the Marines. Where the hell is his green card? I don't know what the hell he did, but I got my green card three months before my mom and my sister did. And I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Staff Sergeant France said, Ty, you have three options you can pick from. You can be motor vehicle operator, motor vehicle mechanic, MBC defense specialist. That's all I have. I said, I know MBC's poisonous gases. I don't want to mess with that. Okay, Staff Sergeant, how about tanks? Can I drive tanks as a motor vehicle operator? He said, no, you can't drive tanks. So I said, how about Humvees, the Rangers in Black Hawk Down? He's like, yeah, it's just like the Rangers in Black Hawk Down. So that's what he told me. I became a 3531 motor vehicle operator. And I thought I was Billy Badass. No pun intended with your name. 
the went to boot camp when MOS MOS school graduated number one from MOS school and made meritorious lance corporal and went in reserve. Um, so I was in reserve from 05 to 09. I became a U S citizen in 2008 and applied to go to OCS, went to OCS and commissioned as a Marine Corps officer. And uh, yeah, I went to TBS in 09 when I graduated from the university. I was on active duty for four years, mostly in a desk job. Got an MOS that I didn't really want. <laughs> Became a finance officer. Like to this day, I, I still joke that's racist that they made the Asian guy a finance officer, <laughs> but it is what it is. Hey, like he's good at math. Hated it. <laughs> I, I shit you not. I shit you not. On active duty, every day I'll go into dispersing office where they pay Marines. And they should outsource that to the private sector. It makes no sense. And I would have nothing to do. But okay, I'm just going to go to grad school and study for a GMAT. The opportunity came up to volunteer for deployment. I volunteered as a PSYOPs officer to go to Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan in 2012. Got out, went to business school. Later on, rejoined the reserves and lat moved to become a logistics officer. And yeah, here I am today. So very unspectacular military career. But with that said, despite the fact that my accomplishments were unspectacular, it's definitely an experience that absolutely changed my life in mm. so many ways. Um, I see it as a badge of honor being associated with the organization. Mm. I made lifelong friends, people who are much, much more impressive than me, people who I look up to. And these are some of the closest friends that to this day of my life. Like when you suffer together, even though I was a pogue on deployment and I just pushed paper, but even in TBS or in kind of field training, when you suffer together, get rained on, like those bonds that you form, our bonds are just never, like, they endure throughout the rest of your life. The Marine Corps has given me more than I can ever hope to give back. So, you know, if people ever ask, should I join the military? For me, the answer is unequivocal yes. Even purely on an economical level, if you're middle class or below, like, going in the military, becoming an officer, and going go to good grad school afterwards is like a highly probable ticket to the upper middle class. And people don't realize that. And it's just a, a transformative experience, both intrinsically and also socioeconomically for me. I completely agree. I, as I'm getting ready for my first child, I'm thinking about like that path from high school to becoming an adult. And the thing I went to a military academy and I tell people pretty regularly, like the only good thing that I got out of my college degree was that I got put into the military afterwards and the military paid for it because I like my experience because my experience was free. I was able to bumble my way through figuring out who I was as a person on the government's dime versus going into a state school and paying a lot of money for a degree I probably wouldn't use. And then being like starting my adult life off in debt, which I just is like, which is, I just feel like people get, they just start on such a, like a negative foot because they haven't Dude. really figured their life out yet. Yeah. Yeah. The post nine eleven GI bill is the, the most generous tuition reimbursement program on the freaking planet, right? This, it's 
unreal. It, it is a ripoff to the American taxpayer. Like, I say that with the most res- uh, 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 utmost respect because some veterans have given a lot, like life and limb, um, to, to earn the post-9-11 GI Bill. For those of us who maybe contribute a little bit to the organization, but really nothing special, and I, I definitely include myself as a part of it, the post-9-11 GI Bill is an incredible benefit. Like, I went to a great grad school which at the time cost $58,000 per year, tuition only, right? So not including room and board and everything. And to like today, I think it costs like $76,000 per year, which is unreal because the median American family makes like 55K. But I went free, like between post 9-11 GI Bill, Yellow Ribbon, and a school scholarship, I went to one of the best graduate business programs in the world for absolutely free. And that freed me up to be able to start a company a few years after I graduated. If I didn't have that, even if I got into this top grad school, I'd be golden handcuffed to a big company job. And um, I wouldn't be the, the founder that I am today. Yeah. And so why did you, when did you realize that you wanted to exit the Marine Corps and move into grad school? Like when did that kind of click for you? Yeah, <laughs> I was a look. I was a finance officer, right? It's not exactly the the most rewarding MOS in the Marine Corps. And I say that with respect to the finance officers of the Marine Corps. Somebody's got to freaking do it. But if you're a Type A person and you're competitive and you want to go and achieve, um, if you want to go into finance, you would. You go to a bank, right? Go become an investment banker or whatever the case may be. I'm not sure people like us go into Marine Corps. Like I would do 20 years as a finance officer. So I knew the, the writing was on the wall that I was going to be one and done in terms of my active duty career. So I was plotting my exit as soon as I graduated from the basic school. But I'm grateful I had the opportunity to deploy doing something else. I'm grateful that when I came back, from Afghanistan, I got a chance to be a company XO and have some kind of other experiences unrelated to being a finance officer in the Marine Corps. And again, no disrespect to the finance officers of the Marine Corps. It just wasn't for me. It did not feel rewarding. Understood. And I think that recognizing that specific career field wasn't for you, I think is completely fine. And it's good that you understood that. I also think it's interesting that you started making that plan for the next step as early as you did because i feel like a lot of military individuals or honestly people in general have a really hard time of looking uh past the the chapter of life that they're currently in and planning for what's next and why do you think you what do you think equipped you to be able to engage in that kind of life planning so early on? I actually wouldn't recommend doing what I did. The reason why I started so early, look, and I don't know, right? But this is just my opinion. The reason why I started so early is because my job did not feel rewarding. I did not feel like I was making an impact. I did not feel like I had a fair shake to lead Marines. And therefore, I was plotting my exit. I was plotting the next thing I wanted to do. But... If you hit the fleet and you're in weapons company, platoon commander, or whatever the case may be, and you're plotting your exit, 
as a freaking second lieutenant or first lieutenant or like junior first lieutenant, um, I think that's too early. You should be focused on your Marines and your, even if you plan on getting out, right? I think a year and a half out. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's plenty of time. I wouldn't do it like three years out like I did, but that's just because that's because I didn't, I wasn't like, I didn't have any real work to do, to be honest with you. I was getting paid, but I was feel like I was getting paid to do nothing. And it, it just didn't feel rewarding. And that's partially on me. That's partially on the organization. But, but that's the reason why I started so early. Don't get me wrong. Starting so early was good for me. Um, but that's because my main job didn't re require very little of me. I did not find it rewarding. The reason why I say you shouldn't start so early is because like, you're there to lead Marines, right? If you're a second lieutenant or junior first lieutenant, you're already thinking about, okay, let me go plan my exit. And you're investing 10, 20 hours a week to do so. It's not the right thing to do. I didn't have those responsibilities in the bills they put me in. So that's the reason why I was doing that. In terms of what I did Look, I didn't have a very strong undergraduate GPA. I knew I wanted to go to grad school. It was law school or business school. I took a practice LSAT. I got a 157. And I just realized, look, I have no passion for law. Like, I could keep grinding and maybe get to low to mid 160s. But I didn't feel like I was smart enough to hit the high 160s or 170 range, which I would need to offset a bad GPA to get into one of the top law schools. So I started studying for a GMAT, and even the questions in the GMAT just seemed a lot more intuitive to me and interesting to me. And I ended up taking the GMAT four times. Part of it is because, like, the Marine Corps, outside of my deployment, and later on being a company XO was a bit of work as well, but as, as a finance officer early on, didn't really have a lot of work to do. Um, I took the GMAT four times. <laughs> Went from 700, 710, 730. Deployment, 750. So I got the score I wanted. So having that time to prep definitely was helpful. If I had less time to prep, then I would have to cram it all together a lot more. How did you know you wanted to go to business school? Like, how did you know that was the path that you wanted to take after you exited the service? <laughs> because you had so many available options yeah. to you upon exit. <laughs> what are you talking about? So many available options. <laughs> I didn't have jack. I didn't have, I didn't have jack shit. Yeah. I was a political, I was a political science major, which is a very mm -hmm. generalist degree that doesn't have any directly transferable skills, unlike accounting or computer science, mm -hmm. right? Business school is the degree for people who don't know what they want to do. <laughs> no, I'm not even like being facetious. Yeah. It is a hundred percent. That's why so many veterans choose to go to business school. If they knew what they wanted to do, then they will go do probably go do something else unless like okay, I want to go into investment banking. That's what I want, and of course they go to business school as well. Business school just opens a lot of doors for you. If you go to a good business school, hundreds of firms will come to the university campus to recruit people like you, and these will be investment banks, consulting firms, CPG firms, tech firms, startups, private private equity is hard to get into unless you have previous background in investment or whatnot. Or but like. You get the gist, right? A lot of different companies with a lot from a lot of different industries, a lot of different functions come on campus to recruit you. 
Whereas if you go to law school or if you go to med school, like you're going to be a lawyer or you're going to be a doctor. And imagine being like year four of med school and you're absolutely, year three of med school, you're absolutely miserable, but you have $150,000 of sunk cost in the three years of your life and you have no choice but to finish, but you're just dying and you hate life. And after that, you have four years of residency where you're making peanuts and you're working 90 hours a week. Like, you better have conviction that you want to be a doctor. Whereas business school, two years, getting in is the hardest part. Business school is not actually that hard unless you take really hard classes, which you can choose to do if you want to academically challenge yourself. And after that, the world is your oyster. You can do a variety of different things. So business school is the professional education for the undecided veteran. And in my research, I discovered that early on. And what did that research look like? What else did you look for besides what other paths did you evaluate besides business school and law school? Or were that was that really the only were those really the only two things you looked at? Yeah, it was the only two things I looked at. I went to a decent but not amazing university for undergrad, the University of Illinois. Um, my GPA was, was not that impressive. I had a generalist degree. If I hit the open job market as a recently separated Marine Corps officer, um, I knew my worth. I'm like, yeah, I'm worth 50 or 60K. So how do I get the life that I want? And I felt like graduate business school made a lot of sense for me. And I'm a great test taker. I'm Asian, man. Like, I got top 1% in ACT and SAT. Low top 1%, but top 1% nonetheless on ACT and SATs with no studying. So I knew I could crush that. So I knew if I studied for a GMAT, I'll score really well. So I knew I had a chance at a top 15 business school. And I knew that if I got into a top 15 business school, it opened doors for me that would enable me to, to get an income that's at least comparable to my senior first lieutenant pay when I was getting out of the Marine Corps. Um, so that's what I decided. I think you got in the Marines like, they teach you, like, know yourself, right? Know your strengths and weaknesses. And I knew my strengths and weaknesses, and I played accordingly. So when you exited the service and you started business school, what was that, what was it like for you from a, like, culture perspective to transition out of the service, which was the thing you had done from high school and then going straight into, like, academia what was that like for you so cringe i was so cringe honestly i was slapped the shit out of myself and went back to 20, 2013 when i started business school uh-huh. i remember we had this orientation a two-day orientation yeah and some of it includes some obstacle team building shit right like same kind of shit that you do at officer candidate school mm-hmm. so i was like all right i was like I'm going to organize everyone. And I'm going to freaking lead. I'm going to have bias for action. I'm like, do this. And then some like former McKinsey consultant came to me as, hey, Sonny, like I could give you some feedback, man. Can't do that. All right. In the private sector, what we do is we discuss a plan. We build consensus. We get everyone to agree. And we do things. You can't just go tell everyone what to do. And that was a little bit of awakening for me in terms of a different culture that I'm stepping into. Because in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. like you reward that kind of initiative. And in private sector, you do things differently. 
And I think he, he was right. Even to this day as a startup founder, yeah, like theoretically, I'm the king of the castle, but any big decision I run by my leadership team, hey, what do you guys think of this? What do you guys think of this? Because making business decisions is very different than if you're a com- platoon commander. Like if the Taliban is coming after you and you have this much time to make a freaking decision on how to defeat the enemy and keep your Marines alive. Like one person needs to make that fucking call yeah, and, and make a split second decision. In business, you, you generally have time, right? There's nothing that's okay. Well, Lieutenant, you got freaking 10 minutes to make a decision, mm-hmm. right? There are very few things that are like that. That's why you want to collect as many perspectives and as much data as possible before mm-hmm. you make that decision. And it's rarely one person that's okay. I'm the king of the castle. I make, I had a boss that once said, when I speak, you shut up, right? Like leading that way just doesn't work. People, people can walk. They don't have to work for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. They don't have to give their best effort. And it's a lot more about collaborative decision-making. So that's a culture shock that I got when I got into business school. And I was able to, I think, adjust my leadership style really well. Do you feel like you had any issues going into going into business school with, I don't know, the just other than wanting to lead in a different way, did you have any issues or any, like moving on from Sonny the Marine into Sonny, just the civilian, like the business, what was that identity shift like for you going into business yeah. school? Do you think, is that something you had issues with? A little bit, but I think that might be a personality issue rather than a military identity issue. When I was in the military, I've always wanted to blend in with the civilians. I hated going out in San Diego and have go and meet girls or whatnot and have them see my haircut and be like, oh, you must be from Camp Pendleton. I really hated that. So I really tried to blend in and act like everyone else. I always had longer hair than I was technically authorized to have in the Marine Corps. So I was never the high and tight, oorah, like, like motarded Marine. So that kind of identity shift was not as drastic for me. But um, I think there are some values in the Marine Corps that I really took to heart and I take to heart to this day. The concept of like mission team self, the concept of eat, elite, leaders eat last, the concept of um, you lead by example with the selflessness, the concept of um, the needs of organization come first. Right? Um, then you step into the world of kind of MBA programs where everyone's very capital, they're very like impressive and intelligent, but very capitalistic. Everything is about like, how can I achieve the maximum financial gain for myself? Almost like 90% of things are about that. And a lot of my classmates also come from like very privileged backgrounds. Like I talked about my lower middle class background. My mom made $12 an hour. Like, And there's people that come from a lot of privilege. So every time there's the school is off for some reason, people will go on trips abroad or go on fancy like three Michelin star dinners and things like that. And there's a lot of pressure to keep up with the Joneses. And I just felt like more and more, I just didn't didn't want to deal with these people. They're just not the same type of people that I am. And there's nothing, I'm not criticizing them. It's just like my background and my upbringing and my time in in the Marine Corps. And it's just so different from people who 
come from upper middle class or even upper class, come from a lot of family wealth, went to Ivy League universities, and now they're a top business school and their sole focus in life is how can I make as much money as humanly possible? And there just ends up not being a lot to talk about. So I was a person in business school that didn't have a lot of friends and I was okay with that. I walked away with three or four friends that I count to be very close and I, I love them with all my heart, but I was not the guy that got invited to a wedding every two months. And I was fine with that. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. What advice would you have for people? It seems like you've got a very strong sense of like identity and self. You're moving through these chapters of your life, but you understand who you are. And how do you think you've been able to do that? Because I think for a lot of people, they really are almost a victim of their environment in a lot of different cases. And you don't seem like someone who's like that. So what do you think enables you to be that way? I think that's very lofty praise for me. And I would actually disagree. I think that developed over time, especially after I became a founder. In fact, when I was in business school, I had a huge inferiority complex over my classmates. Huge imposter syndrome inferiority complex. I went to a state school. I didn't have a high GPA. I didn't study STEM. Um, I didn't get into McKinsey, Bain, or BCG. And you have classmates who went to Stanford, Yale, Columbia, Harvard, who, who got jobs at Google, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, BCG. Um, very selective Lazard, like private equity groups and whatnot. And I look at myself and I look at them and I felt less than. Um, but over time, then even as my career progressed, like early on after business school, you see my classmates like getting into jobs are paying 300K plus. And I'm still stuck in the mid 100s. And then that inferiority complex compounds even more. But everybody has to discover their own path. One of my closest friends from business school um, got laid off from Blue Apron. And he's a, I posted about him before. He's a full-time social media influencer now. He's got an MBA from a top five school, top five business school. And he's a social media influencer. Can he make a lot of money doing that right now? No. Like he can make enough money to barely get by. Someday, maybe. But he has so much passion for what he does. Like his channel just spreads such a positive message. And, and, and he gets a lot of feedback from his audience on how it's been life-changing. He's a devout Christian and that's part of kind of his mission. He just loves what he does. It brings him so much joy. Okay. He doesn't make 500K like some of our classmates do. But... He gets a lot of joy about from what he does. And I don't think he feels inferior. So same thing with me, right? Like after I became a founder, I'm like, okay, this is my path. This is what I'm decent at. I get a chance to build a company, do what I love, work with amazing, incredible people. And I'm talking like all three legs, invest, we got amazing investors. We have amazing customers. And sometimes the customers can be difficult, but that's any company. 
And we got amazing team members, right? Uh, it's such a privilege to wake up every single morning and get to work with them. And yeah, I don't draw a $500,000 plus salary like some of my classmates from business school. Yeah, I'm not a partner at Bain, but I no longer feel inferior. I feel like I've found my path. And I feel like I found a very rewarding path that's right for me. And I think that everybody, whether you're a transitioning veteran or somebody else, you have to go and discover what that path is for you. And you can't look at everybody else who's conventionally successful and be like, fuck, like I'm a loser because I, I didn't achieve that. If, if you end up like that, you'll be very, very unhappy. I, I completely agree with you. I think that it gets harder and harder because veterans, um, <clears throat> excuse me, veterans, we go to TAPS, the transition assistance, and then they say, hey, go to LinkedIn. People hop on LinkedIn and then the LinkedIn algorithm just boosts people who are basically you're incentivized to advertise your big wins on LinkedIn. And that concept of measuring yourself, I think, is becoming a lot more prevalent based off of social media and what people can find on the Internet. And so I think it's tough for yeah, people, but, but, for people yeah, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a delicate, how to say, a delicate balance. Mm hmm. Use it as motive, use it as motivation, mm -hmm. but not to a point where it's making you unhappy. Like you should look at people who are becoming very successful and be like, yeah, I, I want to be like that. And I need to do the right things and make the right decisions, put in the right work so I can be like that. But you can't make it your sole obsession where if you fall short in some way or, or some perceived way, that's impact your mental health. So it's a little bit of a fine line that you, you have to dance. And yeah, you got to find what success means in, in, in your mind and continue to make progress towards it. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you have strong, a strong understanding of what you want and you have strong conviction, you're able to see other people and not be affected by their success. But like you said, there's there there's a line that you can cross where it starts to affect you in a negative way. One thing that I'm interested in is with the advent of COVID and online schooling becoming more and more of a thing, what is your opinion on online business school versus in-person business school? I, look, I'm, it's hard to ask me because I've only done one, which is in-person. But, yeah, and here's the other thing. I'm pretty sure I've undiagnosed ADHD, at least in mild form. Like, you're telling me to log in every single day and listen to a fucking lecture and do homework on my own with no supervision for a long period of time and actually do well at it? I would die. I, I would do very poorly. I strongly prefer in-person business school. Partially because I probably have undiagnosed ADHD. But I think the other thing is that um, the value that you get out of business school is not the knowledge. Now, that's part of it, right? And if you take some very like difficult and quantity classes, then there's definitely a lot of value in that knowledge. But what separates Harvard Business School from an MBA from the University of Phoenix? I guarantee you that the quality of education is somewhere near the very bottom. I guarantee you that University of Phoenix 
even uses Harvard Business School case studies. So the shit that you learn is the same. What sets Harvard apart? Putting Harvard on your resume, that's part of it. And you can get that online too, not with Harvard, but with some other like high-end schools. But the, the in-person networking and on-campus recruiting, you can, I'm not close with her, but one of my business school classmates is a founder of Simple Mills. I don't know if you've seen their products in Whole Foods and basically every single grocery store in America now. I'm pretty sure they have over a billion dollar valuation. That's one of my classmates. Another one of my classmates, also a woman, she founded a company that sold to John Deere for $250 million. Numerous of my classmates, many of them, are partners now, full-fledged partners in McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, in top-tier consulting firms, right? And this is, this is a booth, not Harvard or Stanford, right? The caliber of people that you, your, your classmates at the top business schools is absolutely incredible. And the network that you will be able to build with your classmates that can help you in the future is profound. That you just don't get as much of that experience online as you do in person. Like I sat in Zoom for a semester with my classmates, like you don't really build that much of a connection, right? Um, there's also in-person recruiting, on-campus recruiting. I mentioned this before. If you go to a selective business school, like some of the most selective and high-paying firms will come to campus to recruit you. And online, you just not as much, right? You, you just have to go jump and just way harder to get. So there's huge benefits to attending business school in person to me. I would completely that, agree. Nothing to do I with think... the knowledge. Yeah, I completely agree. I think those connections are the thing that make or break that experience and what makes it worth it for sure. And so when you graduated, when you graduate business school, you start working at Accenture. But if you go on to your LinkedIn, you were working at Accenture and CBRE for basically two years. What was yeah, your... I got, yeah. <laughs> what I got happened? fired. <clears throat> oh, okay. I got fired. <laughs> what, like just layoffs? Um, no, I didn't. It wasn't misconduct or anything. My staffing rate was 36%. So I was not making money for the company. And they shit canned me. Um, they shit canned me along with a bunch of other people. <laughs> they didn't be like, Sonny Ty, you're the one. Um, but I had, a, I had a good experience the time I was staffed, mostly. The one time I had a really bad experience was I was staffed on a pharma project. I knew nothing about pharma. Every day I, I was up till 3 a.m. like reading Wikipedia trying to learn about pharma. I shit you not. I did terrible. They fired me. They fu and I got berated every single day. And they fired me from that. They uh, I was fired from that project. And they brought in a different consultant to replace me. Yeah, I, I knew I was, I, I knew my time at the firm was going to be short when I got fired from that project. Um, there are some, there are some consultants that are so good at being consultants, so smart. They can throw them in that situation. They'll do well. Um, I just wasn't one of those. So going back to knowing your strengths and weaknesses, right? I wasn't a good consultant. It is what it is. Then CBRE. So I got fired. I moved back with my parents to save money. Applied for jobs. For six months, I was on unemployment. And also, the only job offers I got were low-ball job offers that didn't make sense for me to take. 
and also applied to some freelance work. And it turns out that the strategy team at CBRE um, needed some staff on. And the pay was very compelling, $1,000 a day. Now, it was like ten, it was like 1099 work, right? So you only get paid on days that you're on. But that's $5,000 a week. So it's $20,000 a month, right? That's good. Probably equivalent to having a, a W-2 job that paid 200 So it was good. I did decently well in that project. Where like, yeah, I actually made some really nice lifelong relationships. Like one of the consultants that was a bit of a mentor to me on a project, much more senior than I was. I actually hired him for my startup right now. We're in talks right now. The, the manager, the, the vice president of strategy for CVRE, good friends with him today. He later on went and became a startup CEO himself. And, and we still talk on a regular basis. The senior vice president of transformation at CBRE invested, invested in my company just a few months ago. So built some really nice relationships, learned a lot. But yeah, after that, I decided to go and become a startup founder. And here we are today. That's really cool. And so for you, when did you know, I guess this is a two-part question. When did you know you wanted to found a company and how did you find the idea that you knew was worth building a company on? Yeah, I knew I wanted to found a company when I was 10 years old. Um, my mom went back to Taiwan and she came back with a brand new computer. Pentium 100, Windows 95, 16 megabit, megabytes of RAM, 800 megabyte hard drive. Dude, back in 96, man, that shit was like state of the art. It was unreal. Um, then I started like playing Doom, Shareware Doom. My friends got into Warcraft 2. We started playing a lot of real-time strategy games. StarCraft, Total, sorry, not StarCraft, yeah, Dark Rain, Total Annihilation, StarCraft. And I had a core group of friends and that, that said that one day we're going to start a company together and become a next Blizzard Entertainment. Of course, that never, that never happened. But two of my friends in that group ended up actually becoming real software engineers. One's still in South Africa. The other one lives in Netherlands right now. And they're very successful as software engineers. I'm the only dumbass that didn't actually become a software engineer. But no, I knew I wanted to start a company since I was 10, man. I wanted to start a gaming company. Obviously, it never happened. And of course, my career tra trajectory up to that point. But it's always been in the back of my mind. Even when I was in business school, yeah, I was floating ideas by my classmates for startups I wanted to found. And all of them were stupid. And I agreed that they were stupid. I even thought about starting an energy drink company when I was, when I was at Accenture, when I wasn't getting staffed and nothing to do. And of course, that never went anywhere. Yeah, after a Las Vegas shooting, we started looking into whether or not we can use technology to help save lives. Uh, I grew up in South Africa, where there's a lot of gun violence. Um, some of our family friends were closely impacted by gun violence. So, yeah, decided to, 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 to do it. Um, did, did some customer discovery. Felt like the idea had legs. Found a co-founder, and here we are today. That's awesome. And so what exactly is the mission and product of Actuate for people who aren't familiar with what you do? Yeah, we build AI software that enables existing security cameras to identify threats to safety and security. Some of the core things that we do now are intruder detection, loiter detection, crowd detection, gun detection, and slip and fall. Somebody fell. Just five, five core capabilities. 
Um, it's not a lot, but we found and customer discovered that these are the five things that companies who monitor cameras want most. So we decided that our mantra is brilliance in the basics and product development. We focus on being really good at a core group of small, a small core group of capabilities instead of trying to do too much at once and being bad at all of them. Did you have any fear or like hesitation when it came to like actually jumping out and starting Actuate? Yeah, of course. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask how you dealt with that at first. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other, man. Yeah. Thought about quitting many times. <laughs> it's 14 months, took no pay. I was personally running so low on money that my best friend from the Marine Corps sent me $10,000 on Venmo. Said that I can pay him back whenever or don't pay him back, whatever. My mom also sent me $10,000 just so I could live. My first paycheck was $2,000. After that, a few months after I asked my co-founder if I could bump it up to three, he gave me a ton of pushback, but eventually I got $3,000 a month. Then we raised our seed round. I made 80K, which means I could afford to live, but shit's hard, man, early on. But you just keep putting one foot in front of the other as long as you're making progress. Keep doing the right things and good things will happen. And what do you, for people who, for veterans who are, trying to who are possibly considering getting out of the military and starting their own business what advice would you have for them look i don't want to be the guy that's like every freaking every object is a nail if you have a hammer but go to business school what the reason that like you've got post 9-11 gi bill at least you should unless you're a naval academy or whatever or west point and you may not have it but if you have it go because what happens is that if you want to start a company in business school, you're surrounded by talented people who also don't have jobs yet. You maybe will find a co-founder to complement your skill set. The school might be able to provide you with some funding. Okay. And you've got two years of no opportunity cost where you can build your company and see if it has legs. If it has legs, you continue. If it doesn't have legs, just go find a job. So one of two things will happen, right? You'll come close to graduation, like, Okay, when I graduate, I'm going to keep building this company. Or this company's not going anywhere. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to have a degree from a top school. And I'm going to go get a big boy job. It's a win situation. Whereas if you get out of the military, you start a company. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's much more of an uphill battle, much more risk. Okay? You don't know anyone. You have no credibility. You have, depending on how much money you saved in the military, you have no capital, right? If you get out as a, get out as a captain or a senior first lieutenant, well, God forbid you get out as a corporal, like what, you have $30,000 savings, $60,000? It's not that much, man. You can burn through that just like that, right? To try to fund a company, like there's so much more risk. Go de-risk yourself. Go to business school to where if you start a company, and it doesn't go well, you have a top MBA to fall back on. It's way, it's just way safer. So that's my advice. Now, there are people who get out of the military and they start companies and they're very successful, right? I'm not saying it's impossible. 
I'm just saying a risk adjusted return basis, I would spend the two years in business school, especially if you go get to go for a discounted rate or free because of post 9-11 GIP. It's definitely a compelling offer. And I, I think people would be crazy to not take it. But again, go in person for all of you out there listening. It's way better than that. It's way, it's the better option for sure. And I would definitely agree with that. As a founder, what was the, in your time with your company, what's something that you have had to learn that you did not expect? What I have to learn that I did not expect. Jeez. I don't know how to answer that question specifically, but I would say like the easy answer is everything. You don't know what the hell you're doing. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Literally my co-founder and I, sometimes there was like the blind leading the blind, right? Like, and you just have to keep getting burned and correcting course, right? Like we've wasted so much money and so much time on bullshit that didn't move the needle. And there's so much misinformation on the internet on what's going to move the needle and what's not, that the only way to figure out is to try. Early on, when we've only raised like $150,000, this is a lot of money for us at the time. We spent $6,000 on a sales course. And it was a sales course that basically was all about click funnels and video sales letters. It's about the spammy type of stuff that you get on the internet. Right? So it wasn't a type of sale, sales training, professional sales training for like enterprise B2B sale. But we didn't, like my co-founder didn't know better. We spent all this time, I spent all this time because my co-founder time was like more of a technical side, the product side, but spent all this time like making stupid click funnels and video sales letters and shit like that and wondering like nothing converted. It was just really dumb. And so $6,000 in a lot of time. We hired a bunch of incompetent people early on. And we didn't have the balls to fire them at the earliest signs that they were not being competent. So we let that drag on. Right? The stuff you can't learn in business school. Dude. Like, you know, even if people say hire slow, fire fast, like it's not, it's never that easy in real life. Um, but yeah, a lot of trial and error, man. Even pitching investors, like I'll look at some of my previous pitches, it just like cringe. Like, who the fuck gave me money? Um, but somehow they saw something, right? Like recently we just raised a million and a half dollars as an extension round, and it was some of the easiest money I've ever raised. But it's after all that trial and error, like what investors care about, what metrics they care about. Like I was told by an angel group that this is the best, I had the best pitch that they've ever seen in their 15 years of angel investing. But that's after getting burned so many times. Um, like Even to a point where one of my first pitches, I went to Northwestern University, Kellogg School of Business, to meet a professor there who was a venture capitalist. She laughed at me. I know everybody has that sob story. Somebody laughed at them, but she legit laughed at me. I'm not going to say her name. Actually, I didn't remember her name. I just remember her name of her VC. Um, and you, just, no, you shrug it off. I'm, I'm sure my pitch sucked. 
I'm sure it was garbage. So maybe I deserve to be laughed at, right? Also, another investor who took me out to lunch and I got a free meal out of it. Nah, dude, no, I would never invest in your company, man. Hey, at least you get, at least you get a no, which is good. It's better than maybe forever, but just a lot of trial and error, man. A lot of things. And you just have to be able to take the lumps, take it on a chin, correct course, adjust fire, just like in artillery and keep adjusting fire until you're on target. Then you fire for effect, man. That's what building a startup is. That's awesome. How do you deal with the, how do you deal with that sense of the blind leading the blind almost? I I think that for a lot of veterans, we're so used to the structure of the military when we get out that moving into a world that's very much your call is really difficult. And so for you where the stakes are even higher raised because it really is your call and it can go anywhere because you're king of the castle. How do you deal with that? Or how do you think people can deal with that? I think people in the military, uh, it depends on what branch you're in, what MOS is, on what you did, right? I was a pogue, I pushed paper, but like I have a lot of friends who are combat arms or infantry, even some. Um, look, when you're in fucking cop, bum, cop bumblefuck in goddamn like RC East, and there's. No, no major fob within 50 miles of you. Like, it's the same thing, man. You're a platoon commander. You're in charge. And your men are counting on you. And I guess building, like, yeah, look, I, I've never done that. So I'm just assuming, right? Like, building a startup is, is similar. And there's going to be fog of war. Just like my fog of war of trying out a lot of vendors and trying a lot, a lot of employees and refining my pitches. And you just, Keep trying, collecting data, and using that data to make sure you get it closer to being right the second time. It's all you can do, man. Seriously, it's all you can do. The reason why investors like repeat founders, investors like repeat founders even if they failed before. Because they know that they hope that you learn from your failures in the past and do better in the future. Even if Actuate died two years ago. Like I would be a better founder today on my next company um, than I was three years ago because of all those lessons learned, because all those mistakes I'm not going to make again. And in the military, if you're deployed and you're, the com- you're in command and you're out there in the middle of nowhere, you're going to have to make some of these same mistakes. So, yeah. But not everyone gets that chance. So um, it depends on what you did in the military. <laughs> Yeah, it it does. And I, I, that's a great point about having to make decisions in isolation when you're serving. I do think it's interesting because for whatever reason, I've seen a lot of moments where veterans have this really hard time correlating their military experience to the next chapter of their life, even if at a fundamental level, like you said, making decisions in a vacuum that applies. But then we have this mental block of, oh, well, I did that in the military, but this isn't the military. So that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the key. I think the key is humility, right? Mm. Chances are that nothing you did in the military is going to transfer over to the private sector from like a hard skills, technical level, unless you're like, you know, a com like a, a commo 
and you go into IT, then like maybe 50% will transfer, right? Because a lot of technical skills are, are yeah. going to be similar. But for most of us, none of it will transfer. Which means that, but there's a lot of companies that are willing to take a chance on somebody's, somebody who's hardworking and smart. Mm-hmm. Like intelligence and hard work is, and humility, the humility to, to be willing to learn is a very desirable combination for companies, especially companies looking to de- develop their next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a reason why investment banks will hire from the Ivy League, even if you were like a classics major or philosophy or some bullshit, right? Like political science, like me. But if you went to Harvard, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will still hire you. Mm-hmm. It's not because of what you learned at school. It's because they know they they assume that you're smart. Now, not everyone goes to Ivy League smart, right? It's a legacy admissions, a whole other can of worms. But firms assume that if you got in, you're smart. Um, it's, statistically, it's like prob- probabilistically true. And if you're willing to grind the 90 to 100 hours a week, then they want you and they'll only pay you a lot of money. So as a veteran, you got to have the same mentality. Can you be the smart and hardworking person that companies want to invest into and just be a sponge. And just like when you're in the military, like you're learning a new billet or whatever the case may be, you just soak up information, be humble, work hard and freaking learn. And eventually you're going to develop mastery in whatever you're doing and you'll be highly desired. It's funny you keep talking about the BS degrees because I graduated with a degree in military history. So I definitely feel you there. Oh, okay, yeah, that's worthless. <laughs> so- uh, interesting, 100%. interesting, but worthless, right? Oh, yeah, no. Like, I'm... You can tell people, yeah, the, the English defeated the the French Cavaliers in a battle of Agincourt with the longbows. And, hey, oh, yeah, no, I've, pretty... I'm I'm the king of random facts. But uh, yeah, it's then I my, the only my saving grace was I had I somehow had the foresight to go into cyber warfare in the Air Force. And that uh, that gave me enough skill to be able to pivot into a, a civilian career that's Actually so that is, is one of the rare examples where that directly transfers. Like cy- yeah. cyber, dude, every organization freaking needs cyber because every organization can get freaking hacked. So that is the <laughs> that's one of the very few MOSs in the military that you get out. Somebody will give you a freaking job on yeah. on a basis of your te- technical merit. Mm-hmm. If you are a freaking motor T or some shit. Like I was, I guess I could become a truck driver, but there's nothing wrong with that. You make, make a lot of money. But if you're infantry, like unless you can go be a cop or you can go work for Blackwater, you're. Yeah. Like, it's good. The, you know, yeah. The lift to pivot into something's really hard. So. Yeah. Uh, you you got to earn your stripes yeah, just like anywhere else, just like in the military. Yeah, yeah exactly. How did you have maintained motivation when you were not getting paid to keep the dream alive? Because that's something that I personally not struggle with, but I think about where I work at a company that pays good money and to reduce, there's a part of me that I believe was started in the military from just a consistent paycheck perspective of if this money goes down, I've failed. And I would love to know 
how you dealt with that? Progress, right? It's like it's like going to the gym. If you're 300 pounds, you're not going to become jacked and ripped within the first month. But if you step on a scale every week and the numbers go down, or forget the numbers, right? Because uh, if you look in the mirror every week and you're like, okay, I look a little bit better today. Okay, I lost a little bit of fat. Then that incentivizes you to keep pushing. So when you're starting a company, you got to celebrate the little milestones. Oh, I got a small commitment from an angel investor. Oh, I got into the startup accelerator. Oh, a customer was very enthusiastic about piloting our product. Oh, this really talented young kid just agreed to join a company. We can't afford to pay him very much, but um, he's doing great work for us. All these like small milestones you have to celebrate because these are indications that you are getting traction. If you are not getting these, if you're not getting these small wins, then it, it just may be an indicator that you're not working on the right idea, man, or you're not doing the right things. Um, but eventually, like the small wins will turn into an occasional big win. Our big win, our first big win, I'd say, was we got introduced to our seed investor, eventual seed investor, Blink Capital. Didn't even think he was giving me a time of day. Very successful investor. Very one of the most successful investors in Silicon. Now he's in Miami, but previously Silicon Valley. He's in a Midas um, top investor list or whatever, super prestigious list. He's like number six on the list. Never thought he would give me a time of day. But he's like, all right, are you raising money? Show me your pitch. I was like, oh, we just finished a small round, but could take on more. And 30 minutes into the conversation, he goes, I want to back you. And four days later, he wires $600,000, right? So those small wins turn to big wins. And you just need to keep building on that too to stay motivated. I like what you're saying about taking like non-monetary, almost non-monetary victories are what non-monetary victories can be just as, are just as powerful as getting paid consistently or whatever it is with a stable job versus, yeah. Here's the other thing, man. If you're a startup founder, your monetary reward is not your freaking salary. Your salary is meant for you to be able to survive and keep working on a company. Okay? At least early on. Your reward comes in the exit. So, yeah, raising some investor money and being able to pay yourself is a milestone. But the bigger motivation should be like, okay, now the investor resources to go and hire engineers, go and hire a marketer, Go and hire account executives. Go and invest in an office space. That's what should excite you. Not that, oh, okay, I just raised a pre-seed round. I can pay myself $5,000 a month. That should be relief that you're not eating to your savings as much. But it should not be like, okay, that's what motivates me. Because if so, go back to your big company job, man. That's a wrong business. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And... Uh... It is interesting, though. I think that veterans have this. We get so used to that consistent paycheck because the government will always 
pay you, or at least they're the most consistent payer of checks that, that I'm aware of. And it's, uh, I think for people taking that leap that you did, that you took to not make money is I think difficult for a lot of folks. It also depends on what responsibilities you have, right? Mm -hmm. You got a spouse and three kids and a spouse uh, is a homemaker and doesn't make money. Mm -hmm. Stay at a big boy job or a big girl job. Don't do this shit. Mm -hmm. Mm. If you're like me, where nobody actually wants to procreate with me, so I'm just alone. <laughs> um, and you can do this, right? You can do this because you know you suffer a bit of an austerity, but it's you. Your kids aren't suffering. Your spouse isn't suffering. Or uh, my, my co-founder, um, who's no longer with us for personal reasons, but he was a very capable co-founder, but his wife, the boss lady, very intelligent, capable, made a lot of money. Um, I think, I, I don't know for a fact, but I think she made, I don't want to say it, but I, I just remember like when we raised our series A, we had to put in life insurance for like key, key executive insurance for both me and my co-founder. And we had to report our net worth. And I reported my pitiful ass net worth. And my co-founder is five years younger than me, reported his net worth. You're like, what? I was like, how the fuck do you have so much money? <laughs> but He's part of it is well. like, if your spouse is very capable, then you can also take more risks, right? So it depends on your personal situation. Don't be the dude that is married to the idea of being a founder and, and your kids are freaking suffering because you're grinding and not successful. That's not, it's not a good time for anyone. No, it's like, not. But yeah. I, I think that is in, it's an interesting point that you bring up because I think that people, they make these decisions based off a single factor of their life that they're really like locked in on. They make us, they make a decision based off a single factor of their life that they're really zoned in on the, I want to be a founder and they exclude all other factors of their life. It's like the, I'm in the air, I was in the air force. So it's like that classic pilot gets out of the military because they don't want to be away from their family but then they go become an airline pilot because they that's all they think that they can do kind of thing and how do you think that people can make more holistic life decisions like that if that makes sense i don't freaking know man if i were a pilot i'd go become an airline pilot too yeah pays yeah. super well. The benefits are insane. Mm -hmm. You get to do what you love. I assume they, they love flying. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with the easy button, right? You received six plus years of training from the United States government. Mm -hmm. Why waste that training? I don't know, man. Yeah, you can go mm -hmm. do something else, but why not? I think it's a good mm -hmm. idea. I don't know how to answer that question because everyone's situation is different. You got to find what's right for you. That's and sometimes it's not just what's right for you. Sometimes it's right for people, what the people who count on you. Mm -hmm. Going back to, you have a spouse and numerous children, or even one child. They're counting on you. Put bread on a table. If you're a pilot, and you got a job that can, you can get out, go be a first officer somewhere, and eventually be a captain, and you're making two fifty k, and your kids get to go to private school, and you can contribute to your college fund, like whole nine yards. Yeah. Sounds like a good deal yeah, to me. That makes sense. 
So the last question that I want to ask you, a question we ask everybody before we finish up is what is your overall piece of advice that you want to leave people with for transitioning veterans or just people who are preparing to step into a new venture in their life? I think it sounds, again, it sounds like, you know, all you see is nails when you have a hammer, but go to the best possible school you can get into. It sounds super elitist where rankings matter. The reason why rankings matter is because 30 years ago, if you went to university, you're already separated from everyone else who didn't go to university. We're in a market now where everybody went to university, almost everybody. So if you want to compete for high pain position and you're not bringing very specific industry experience expertise come from military starting out fresh what's going to set you apart what's like the easiest way to set you apart is if you went to a better university than everyone else um you don't have to go to harvard but at least try to get into your flagship state university like if you're from connecticut try to get into uconn right uga florida so great schools and that's going to give you a leg up that's going to reverberate throughout the rest of your life. If you're not academically inclined, there's a lot of jobs out there that are sorely needed that will pay you a lot of money. And people don't perceive these to be prestigious jobs. So who gives a shit what people think? The society needs mechanics and truck drivers and plumbers. Right, like you can make a heck of a lot of money. You can even start your own business in one of these trades. Welders, right? Like we, I can guarantee ro- robotics is not replacing these jobs anytime in your future, including truck drivers. We are not getting self-driving trucks for another twenty years. I can promise you that. The last mile of making self-driving cars just as safe as a competent driver, and you have to figure out the liability issue of in case you cause an accident. It's not going to happen for another twenty years. If you're not academically inclined, go into trades. Don't waste your time and money, even if you're getting a GI Bill, on a bullshit degree that's going to add no value. Because you can wait four years of opportunity costs where you're not making money. Your degree is not going to be worth that much. You're four years older. And then you're getting out four years older with no job experience. right? So I think the choice... Should be close to binary. Go into trades. A lot of them play, pay really well. And it's perfectly respectable. But if you're academically inclined, go to the best school you can possibly get into. I would go one of those two routes if I were getting out of the military today. That's awesome. I think that's great advice. And I love that you shouted out trades. I think that people, I don't know why people view, look down on them, but they're re- like, if you're Brother, an HVAC listen, technician. Listen to this shit. N- oh, Tell listen, me. listen to this shit, okay? My uh-huh. dumbass, because well, first of all, like in New York City, I I, can't, I don't make enough to afford a doorman and like one of the nice <laughs> apartments. So I got, I got I had to walk up. My dumbass went to a friend's house and locked myself out. Uh-huh. Locksmith showed up. It took him about twenty minutes for him to get into the apartment, which is a little bit longer than I expected. Two hundred sixty dollars. <laughs> Don't be a locksmith, man. Yeah. Go be a locksmith, right? Perfectly respectable. It's not that hard to learn, right? 
$260, okay, let's assume it took him 10 minutes to get there and 10 minutes to get back. In New York City, everything's really close. 20 minutes mm-hmm. helped me get into my apartment. All right, $260. That's, what, Easy 350 money. an hour or something like that? Okay. Yep. As opposed to you going to a fourth-tier no-name school, <laughs> struggling to get a job, and landing a job that pays you 50 k And you have student loans. Doesn't make sense. Play to your strengths. Play to your strengths. There's a lot of there's a lot of tradesmen and tradeswomen who are making very nice livings, and their ne- the need for them is never going to go away. Yeah, I would say that their need is on the rise because so few people are pursuing those trade jobs now anyway. So it's it's now is the time for people to do that for sure. And I love that I love that you shouted that out. That's ah, fantastic. Makes me happy. But. Sonny, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I really appreciate you being willing to come on, tell your story, and share your advice to all the listeners. Good stuff, man. I think this is one of the better ones I've recorded, so I'm excited to see the results. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. I'm really excited about it. And thank you, everybody out there, for taking the time to finish the episode. If you like this content, liking the channel or subscribing to the channel, liking the content, sharing it with people who you know need it is always appreciated. But that's the end of the episode, and we will catch you on the next the next one on the Post-Military Podcast. Peace.